Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing, including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It was an impossible dilemma in the sense that we realized that any decision we made could lead to somebody's death. We'd have to go through the rest of our lives knowing that someone had died because we had failed to act. On the other hand, I had to ask myself, what would it be like to go through the rest of my life with my brother's blood on my hands? That's David Kaczynski, author of the book, Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family. David is the younger brother of Ted Kaczynski, a brilliant, troubled, reclusive, former math professor who began sending bombs through the mail in 1978, killing three people and injuring 23 others. When the FBI finally closed in on Ted Kaczynski after a nationwide manhunt that spanned years, it was because they received the ultimate tip. The Unabomber's brother had turned him in. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. There were four of us in our family, mom and dad. Uh, Dad made sausages at his uncle's deli. Mom was a stay-at-home mom, at least until I got to high school. My older brother, Ted, seven and a half years older, was... uh, You know, I idolized him. He was kind to me. Um, But in addition, he seemed to exemplify the family's values, which focused on integrity, education. Um, He was very, very smart. Skipped two grades in school, went to Harvard at the age of 16 on a scholarship. His uh, IQ was tested at, I think, 167 at one point. So, um, you know, he represented everything that I wanted to be at that point in my life. And I never doubted for a moment that I was loved by uh, any of my three family members. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that. And I have to say, uh, you know, our our parents' values, they were were two working class people, both of whom had to drop out of school in high school in order to support their families during the Depression. They had to go to work. And then they finished their high school at night school sometime later. I think they actually met in a book discussion club. (laughs) So there was this um, attraction to the life of the mind, um, a sort of very powerful optimism, uh, a belief that, you know, by developing your mind, you developed your spirit, you became someone who could really um, contribute to the world. So it was part of it. It wasn't only that I modeled myself on Ted. Um, You know, our family sort of had this framework of of values that uh, 
was around the life of the mind, the arts. But even though David idealized and idolized Ted, there was also a sense that there was another side to Ted that had nothing to do with the family's shared values or academic achievement. There was a time uh, a little bit later when I asked my mom, Mom, what's wrong with Teddy? And she was a little taken aback, you know. Well, what do you mean, David? There's nothing wrong with your brother. And I said, well, he doesn't have any friends. Why is that? Doesn't he like people? And sometimes he did seem to shy away from folks. You know, um, somebody would come over unannounced, and he would sort of leave the room quickly, like he was upset that they had arrived or uh, a little frightened. And um, it was then that Mom said that, uh, you know, Ted had had an experience as a child. He is, at the age of nine months, he had gotten sick. They took him to the hospital. Some kind of rash had covered his body, apparently an allergic reaction, but they couldn't diagnose it, and they kept him there for, I think, uh, well over a week. And uh, our parents were only allowed to visit during regular visiting hours. Mom always faulted the hospital for for that. And, uh, you know, she felt that when they brought Teddy home from the hospital, he was a very different child, at least for a while. He didn't smile anymore. He didn't make eye contact. And it was at that point that my mom had said to me, Dave, whatever you do in your life, don't ever abandon your brother, because that's what he fears the most. And of course, I love Teddy. I said, oh, I love Teddy. I'd never abandon Teddy. Uh, And I remember crying, thinking about the pain he had suffered as a little baby. And I think there was another lesson that my mom sort of wove into that sort of teachable moment. And the the lesson was that it takes some compassion, some empathy to try to understand another human being. And how old were you when she imparted this lesson, more or less? I would think I'm not exactly sure, probably somewhere between seven and nine years old. And when you said to your mom, what's wrong with Teddy, what, what, what was it beyond that he didn't seem to have any friends? What, what prompted you to say that, do you think? Oh, I don't know that I've been asked that question, and it's an interesting one. Um, I think there were times when Teddy just seemed like kind of shut down. Um, like something was bothering him, but he wouldn't express it. A strong sense of privacy, uh, an introversion that was unusual, I think, uh, at least in my experience. And I, I tended to be a fairly social person. I mean, I had friends. I, you know, it, it was natural for me to, to be interested in people and to um, want to interact with people. And with Ted, it was quite different. And so probably I was trying to explore why are Teddy and I different in this way. Did you share a room? Uh, we did uh, for uh, a while until I was maybe six or seven years old. And then our father, um, we had an attic that was unfinished. We had moved it you know, from Chicago out to one of the suburbs when I was about three years old. And... Um, my father finished the attic in, you know, like beautiful knotty pine, just made it a, another story of the house. And uh, then that became Ted's room, so that uh, he and I weren't together in a small bedroom. You know, in some ways it was wonderful for Teddy, but on the other hand, it became a very, very convenient escape for him. 
So on those occasions when he, you know, wanted to avoid company, he would just walk up the stairs up to his attic and, uh, you know, I, I call it an attic. It wasn't like it was, you know, some place of banishment. It was very, very nice, nice room up there. Ted goes to Harvard as a very young freshman. During his first year, he's identified as a candidate for a psychological study, an experiment that Ted took part in for three years during his undergraduate career. The study, titled A Multiform Assessment of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men, was masterminded by a famous psychologist named Henry Murray and was meant to measure the effects of trauma on gifted male students. But here's the thing. In order to study the trauma, first they had to inflict it. Students were berated, emotionally and psychologically beaten down, humiliated. These students, chosen for their vulnerability and high degrees of social alienation, were purposefully being traumatized and gaslit because they weren't told the purpose of the experiment, so they had no idea why they were being treated so sadistically. It's a study that would never pass muster today, at least I hope not. You know, there are institutional review boards at colleges and universities, I think, that would look at a study like this and say, no way, this is unethical for various reasons. Um, In fact, even if you go back before the time of the study, there was the Nuremberg Code that came out of World War II, and part of the code was that uh, people should not be harmed or deceived. And this study did both uh, to my brother. He was asked by his defense attorneys, why didn't you drop out? Why didn't you quit? And he said, well, I wanted to prove I could take it, that I couldn't be broken. And in some ways, this is so much like Ted because um, he has this kind of indomitable will, this stubbornness. And yet, what occurs to me is that in some ways, he he may have been broken without realizing it. At the very least, he was uh, hardened. We didn't know about it, actually. Mom had had to sign uh, a release because Ted was only 17 when he went into this study. And so he needed parental permission. And Mom's thinking, oh, you know, Ted, he has some social adjustment issues. Maybe these nice psychologists could could help him. My gosh, (laughs) it was just the opposite. I think there's a theme, in a way, running throughout this story of misplaced trust in institutions in some way. You know, the hospital at that time isolating a baby, I'm sure thinking that they were doing the right thing, but, you know, with repercussions. And then Harvard itself, the idea that, you know, Ted would go to Harvard and find many other very high IQ individuals just like him, and it would be somehow a soft and gentle place, which is... A more accepting place. A more accepting place. Right. And then these psychologists under Harvard auspices who run a study like that, well, surely that's going to be a good thing. Ted graduates and continues his academic rise. David goes off to college himself. And even though they're very different young men, they have a really tight relationship for a period of time. They both love the woods and forest preserves, and they go on joint camping trips. But then, the summer after David's junior year, Ted decides that he's going to quit his job as an assistant professor at UC Berkeley. He wrote a letter to our parents uh, saying that he's decided to uh, 
quit that, you know, he did not find mathematics fulfilling, but in addition to that, he'd come to this conclusion that technology that most people celebrate uh, kind of uncritically is actually has many, many negative consequences. And um, he did not like that mathematics supported technology. But also, on a personal level, he wanted to get as far away from it as, as he could. He wanted to go and, and live in the woods someplace. And um, I remember at that time, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the 60s, but you know, it wasn't that uncommon. Uh, you, you know, I think there were Time Magazine had, had cover stories about people dropping out, quote, dropping out or going back to nature. You know, there was a little bit of a movement, a countercultural movement, uh, that Ted, you know, was not, he wasn't personally aligned with it, but we could understand where he was going. And I remember hearing what he was planning to do, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. Wow. You know, I've always admired my brother, but this is even better. I mean, how many people um, get to do what they really want to do in life instead of what other people expect them to do? And how many people have the courage to follow their own deepest instincts instead of sort of conforming with the, the social expectations? So I thought it was wonderful. Our parents, you know, were accepting. They didn't try to talk Ted out of what he was doing. But I remember um, Mom saying to me at one point, you know, Dave, I, I just, I don't really think this has a lot to do with technology. I'm, I'm afraid that the problem is that... Uh, Ted doesn't, doesn't really know how to relate to people, and he's running away from a society that he doesn't know how to fit into. It gave me pause. That summer, Ted said he was going to go look for land up in Canada and Alaska, and did I want to join him in that search? And so we spent a couple of months uh, together camping in uh, British Columbia mostly. We got up to the Yukon. There was definitely a brotherly closeness. I remember we took one long hike, and um, I don't know if it was something I ate or if it was altitude or something, and I got a very upset stomach. And uh, we were like four or five miles from the car, and Ted ran back to the car to get some Pepto-Bismol that we had there and ran, came all the way back to help me to, so that I could you know, feel better. You know, there was a kindness in him toward me that I always sensed. Um, but there were also be times when he was very shut down, and I didn't know what to make of it. I remember sitting around the campfire one morning, and uh, he just looking into the flames, and he stopped talking. And I asked him a few questions, and he just didn't respond. He was like a like stone there. And so I went off and took a walk, and by the time I got back, he was back to talking again, and I asked him, you know, what was that about? Why, why wouldn't you answer me? He says, oh, I was just I was just deeply thinking. So I accepted it, but there were a couple of times when he was, you know, in a state that, gosh, seemed close to what you would call catatonic. Um, and I, I sometimes wondered if, you know, if, if he was coming to terms with the idea that, you know, maybe Mom was right, maybe this really wasn't the answer, just running away. Both David and Ted are drawn as young men to living solitary lives. But that, it seems, is where the similarity between them ends. 
while Ted seems to be pushing further and further away into a world that appears dangerously hermetic, with nothing but the contents of his own mind for company, David's solitary time has more of a feeling of a pilgrimage. Ted's in Montana, David's in a small cabin in the Texas desert. The brothers are both geographically, psychologically, and spiritually on very different paths. Ted is becoming angrier, more and more hostile. He's written a series of terrible letters to their parents, blaming them for everything, cutting off all contact. David uses his time to arrive at a deep sense of self-knowledge, and eventually he comes to realize that he's in love with his old friend from childhood, Linda, and that he wants to marry her. And so David writes to Ted to tell him the good news. At one point, I told him that I was going to be leaving the desert. I I said, be happy for me. I've finally found the person I want to get married to. It's it's Linda Patrick, this girl I've known since uh, elementary school. And he just wrote this very cruel letter. He had never met Linda, and yet he was saying, it's obvious, just David, just from your letter, that she's a horrible person. You know, she's going to take advantage of you, but no, you never listen to my advice. So, um, you know, I, it's just too painful for me to be your brother anymore. So uh, don't, don't contact me. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. It was just a shock and surprise to me. Although I had some precedent with his sort of out of the blue abusive letters to our parents, angry letters to our parents. And also puts you in a situation where by choosing to love another person, you're losing th- this person who you love deeply. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's kind of like, was Ted thinking that love is finite? You know, that it's like a piece of pie, and if Linda gets a piece, he has less? Um, no, love isn't like that. It's uh, It can expand (laughs) Um, amazingly you know I thought maybe he just didn't understand that maybe he felt abandoned in some way and again my mother's request that I never abandoned Ted came to mind at that point but I was also pretty angry I have to admit I mean thinking how dare he you know our parents were just I think lovely parents and kind to him and, and generous to him and he hurt them terribly and Now he's uh, lashing out at another person that I love. As it turned out from his diaries later, I never, of course, nobody ever read his diaries until after he was arrested. And the um, defense team had asked me to read through his diaries. It was like 30,000 pages of diaries. It was unbelievable. Um, But it was like opening a window into a, a tortured soul. Um, because I realized he had this tremendous longing for human contact, for companionship, would have liked nothing better than to be married and to have a family. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. As communities around the world confront new challenges, including social distancing and school closures, many of us are looking for new ways to relax and feel connected to the world, to ourselves, to one another. Whether that means getting lost in a historical story, a memoir, a work of provocative nonfiction, or a juicy celebrity biography, I know that stories help. Stories pierce our solitude and make us feel less alone. Audiobooks are such an intimate form. It's why I love them. We can just close our eyes 
take a break from Zoom and get swept away. I listen to Audible Originals, audiobooks, guided wellness programs, even comedy, as I'm walking my dog or folding my laundry or behind the wheel of my car. Thousands of titles right at our fingertips. That's such a gift at any time, but particularly during these times. Start your 30-day trial with Audible and get one audiobook plus access to the all-new Plus Catalog for free by visiting audible.com slash danny or by texting danny to 500-500. David and Linda settle into married life. David works as an assistant director of a shelter for runaway and homeless youth. Linda is a professor of philosophy at a local college. He and Ted are completely estranged. David's never even heard of the Unabomber. Remember, these are pre-internet days, where news stories are run the old-fashioned way, the literal, actual newspaper. Or, if the story is big enough, the nightly broadcast news. David and Linda are living in Schenectady, New York, and it's 1994 before the Unabomber story makes headlines near them, after a mail bomb kills New Jersey advertising executive Thomas Mosser. At this time, the Unabomber contacts several national newspapers and asks them to publish what he refers to as his manifesto. He says that if his manifesto is published, the bombs will stop. So then Linda, who's never met your brother, has this kind of lightning bolt of a thought and says to you, I think that Ted may be the Unabomber. And... I was very moved by the way that the two of you navigated that whole period of time after the manifesto was published. Because your your initial response was that that was completely out of the question, of which of course it was, of course it was. But then you read the manifesto and somewhere uh, within you, a tiny little sliver of doubt creeps in. There's a phrase that I came across when I was writing my most recent book. It's a psychoanalytic phrase, and it's the unthought known. What we we know, but it's a live wire. We cannot. It's way too dangerous to think. And so you're somewhere in the territory of the unthought known, and you and Linda are parsing, you know, the manifesto, looking for clues. And at the same time, it's like played out against this backdrop of this profound, impossible choice uh, when you finally do reach the sense that it's possible, you know, that it's possible that Ted is the Unabomber. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Of course, I talked a bit about my brother a lot, perhaps. Linda had many questions why he didn't come to the wedding. I hadn't showed her the letter that Ted had written to me because it was so awful. But, you know, I remember uh, some years earlier, it was shortly after our father died, um, Ted reconnected with my mom briefly. Um, She invited him to explain a little bit about why he had been so angry before. And then he wrote a, a letter that just sailed off back into that anger. And mom sent me the letter. I showed it to Linda. Remember, this is years before David or Linda have ever heard the term Unabomber. Linda's looking at this letter. Now, this is in 1990, so it's shortly after we're married. She's looking at this letter and she says, 
she looks up at me and she says, Dave, you know your brother's sick, don't you? I mean, he's mentally ill. And I, <laughs> I said, no, 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 he's really, really smart. He's got a, you know, a genius IQ, and this is the way he thinks. And Linda said, David, look at this passage. You know, people who are healthy in their minds don't think like this. She actually uh, persuaded me at that point to bring some of my brother's letters to a psychiatrist who we knew socially, and uh, his viewpoint was that, yes, Ted was sick. He said he couldn't make a diagnosis based on some letters, but uh, possibly it was schizophrenia, which ended up being Ted's eventual diagnosis. So now we're in the mid-1990s. The Unabomber has been at it for years. Between 1978 and 1995, he placed or mailed 16 bombs that killed three people and injured 23 others. Linda reads his manifesto, and she's able to have the clarity of thought that this letter, and the letter she read and had analyzed by the psychiatrist years earlier, may well have been written by the same person. Yeah, I mean, it was an impossible dilemma in the sense that we realized that any decision we made um, could lead to somebody's death. And my brother was the Unabomber. Of course, we didn't know at this point, but if it turned out he was and another person was killed, we'd have to go through the rest of our lives knowing that someone had died because we had failed to act. On the other hand, um, at this point in time, uh, the Unabomber was like public enemy number one. And if he was sentenced to death and executed, I had to ask myself, what would it be like to go through the rest of my life with my brother's blood on my hands? You know, ultimately, we realized there was one thing we could control. We could save the next person's life. We could stop the violence. And then maybe since, you know, we had some evidence we'd already gone to a psychiatrist, maybe we could convince the Justice Department that Ted was mentally ill and that there was reason to uh, mitigate the sentence of death and maybe he could get a prison sentence instead. Um, Anyway, that was the hope. I'm struck again and again by the care and thoughtfulness David and Linda put into their impossible decision. They want to be certain, or at least as certain as possible. Linda's oldest friend is a private detective, and she submits one of Ted's letters anonymously to an expert in forensic analysis of language. The expert comes back at 60% that the author of the letter and the author of the manifesto are one and the same person. Our father was gone at this point, but mom was still alive. And we had another choice to make. Do we do we involve mom in this? Do we tell her what's going on? Do we ask her advice? Certainly she was a stakeholder in this thing, but you know, my sense at the time was, oh my God, I, I just can't this could kill mom. And what if Ted's innocent? You know, it would her her pain, her sleeplessness would be for nothing. Anyway, I don't know if that was the right decision, but we decided to go forward without telling Mom. But then, ultimately, when it turns out that it is Ted, and that's been confirmed, and it's about to be public, you you go to your mom, and she reacts really remarkably. Right, right. I mean, it's 
probably my defining memory of my mother. I mean, of all the memories I have of her, but uh, the moment that I, I, I told her that uh, I suspected Ted and that I'd gone to the authorities, um, she looked at me for a moment like she just couldn't believe what she was hearing. And then she, you know, she got up and came up to me and put her arms around my she was a very short woman, like five feet tall. I'm about six feet tall. She, so she had to kind of pull me down and put a kiss on my cheek. And then she said, David, I can't imagine what you've been struggling with. But then she said the thing that I most needed to hear. She said, David, I know that you love Ted. I know that um, you wouldn't have done this unless you truly felt that you had to. And that was... That was the greatest relief I could have experienced at that moment. It was just amazing. And in some sense, it, it exemplified the family values, the values we were raised with, to do the right thing. So David and Linda do the right thing. They are promised they'll be treated as confidential informants, that their names not be revealed publicly. But then the opposite happens. Their suburban home is surrounded by reporters and camera crews. Their names and faces are plastered everywhere. Someone in that huge chain of um, people who, I guess, had knowledge of this made a mistake. At this point, they had investigators planted in the woods around my brother's cabin. And apparently, uh, from what I understand, one of them revealed things that he should not have revealed to a person in the media. We were, in a sense, barricaded in our house. At one point, there was this reporter who got up on a little ladder and tried to film something inside our house through a, one of our windows. And then I remember Linda putting a um, a blanket over all the lower floor windows to to block the media's view of us. And I, you know, people were asking themselves questions like, you know, what kind of a family would produce the Unabomber, or what kind of a brother would turn in his own brother? But I, there was one of the late-night comedians, I think, who I didn't see this myself. I guess he thought he was being funny, but he says, yeah, think of this. Um, in one family, you've got the Unabomber and the Unisnitch. And, man, I thought that was called. <laughs> when the authorities surrounded and then swarmed Ted's cabin in the woods, any lingering doubts that David and Linda might have harbored about whether turning him in was indeed the right thing were starkly addressed. Among the incriminating evidence found was another live bomb beneath Ted's bed, wrapped up, ready to be mailed to someone. But though one very hard part of this story is over, Ted is a Unabomber, he's now been arrested and can cause no more harm, another new very hard part of this story has yet to unfold, a hard part that eventually becomes a beautiful part. David and Linda begin reaching out to Ted's victims. So does David's mom. For a family who has always been set on trying to do the right thing, the ethical thing, it seems the next logical step, if anything here can be called logical. One of these victims is a man named Gary Wright, one February morning in 1987, Gary Wright pulled into the parking lot of a computer company he owned in Salt Lake City. A piece of lumber appeared to be in his way, and when he went to move it, a homemade bomb blew up, 
grievously injuring him. He went through three surgeries, spent three years in and out of casts, and had 200 pieces of shrapnel removed. It was years before that bomb was connected to the Unabomber. I gave him a call, and, um, you know, my heart's kind of in my throat. And at this point, I... Trying to think, what am I going to say? I don't want it to be too rehearsed. I want it to be natural. And then I get this voice that says, You have reached the right house at the wrong time. Please leave a message. <laughs> so I wasn't prepared for that, but I awkwardly let, you know, said, You know, my name is David Kaczynski. I think you know who I am. And I would like to talk to you. If you're open to that, I'll try calling back. And uh, then a few days later, I called back, and uh, again, I didn't, didn't get um, Gary directly. I think it was his daughter, and I heard her say, Dad, you know, somebody's on the line for you. And then Gary came on the line. Though most of Ted's victims and their families wanted nothing to do with anyone named Kaczynski, Gary Wright had a very different response. I wanted to understand what was going through Gary's head, how he was able to forge a sense of compassion for the brother of the man who nearly killed him. I've asked Gary Wright to join this conversation now here on Family Secrets. It was really kind of, a, I guess for both of us, a nervous dance, if you will, in the beginning. But I think I quickly got over it in that I had had quite a bit of time to process um, what I'd been through, whereas David and his family had much less time. So um, when we first began to speak, you know, Dave called and said, you know, I want to apologize on behalf of my family um, for what had happened to you. And, you know, we're really sorry. And I just told him, I said, look, David, everybody has someone in their family they probably want to apologize for. And I know my family probably wants to apologize for me on a lot of fronts, maybe not at the same level, but um, you can't carry that the, the rest of your life. And we went back and forth a little bit and kind of chatted briefly. But I, I did let him know. I said, look, sometimes you might need to speak with someone outside of family, close friends or whatever, um, just even if it's to scream and get something off your chest. And I said, feel free, call me anytime. I mean, Gary's invitation to talk at any time. I mean, it was like, wow. And believe me, he was incredibly helpful. Um, that Just the notion that, you know, the... People affected in different ways could have something in common, that we could not be divided by our relationship to Ted. Gary was Ted's victim. I was Ted's brother. That if, if we could build a bridge across this chasm, this abyss of, of human suffering, then there was hope. And I really felt that deep in my heart. The first time that David and Gary actually meet, David is driving cross-country after Ted enters an insanity plea in court in Sacramento, California, the plea that will ultimately spare him the death penalty. David realizes that the drive will take him right through Salt Lake City, where Gary lives. And with that first meeting begins an important friendship that David describes in his book as being like virtual blood brothers, our bond forged through violence is as powerful and deep as any other. He writes, Nothing can compensate me for losing Ted, but I find a poetic balance in having gained a new brother in Gary. Our choices end up reshaping the universe, 
at least the universe we know. I'm so struck by this beautiful idea that our choices end up reshaping the universe we know. That really could be the motto for this podcast. I think something that's very important when you take one of these risks to reach out to the what people think of as the other side is is to do so without a lot of expectations. Like, I couldn't say, I want this from Gary. I want X. I want Y. I guess with openness comes some vulnerability, but you have to just be open, I think, and drop the expectations. David, you were describing what you and Linda were afraid of when the news broke and your house was surrounded and reporters were trying to, like, you know, crawl in through every crevasse in your house and that, you know, it seems from what I've read and watched that your friendship in both directions has been, I know I hesitate to use this word, but, you know, a a, a healing one. Would you characterize it that way? From my aspect, um, definitely. One of the things I think that seems to be missing or has been pushed off to the side these days just in regular day life is empathy and being able to visualize yourself in someone else's shoes. There's so much of the inwardly focused or, you know, me focused stuff out there that, I mean, there's just not that time taken to look at what what would this be if it were me. And I think in my case, I feel like the ability to be empathetic with what I had seen David and his family go through um, and being open genuinely allowed for us to be able to have conversations. And, And believe me, we've had crazy conversations, but it's really cathartic in a way, both on my end, and I won't speak for David, but it's cathartic in that, number one, you realize there's a great human being on the other side of a divide, right? Um, The event doesn't describe an entire family, even though some families are completely stigmatized by an event that they had no control over. So you realize the human on the other side and the values and you you get the opportunity to dig into what really lies behind a family and when you do that that's when the opportunity for friendship comes into play and friendship in my case you know i i count eh, maybe on two hands who i call friends and david is one of those right if i called him up and said hey dave I need A, B, C, or D, if it was within his power, he would do it. And if I needed him there and he could do it, he would be there. I'm thinking a little bit about, you know, the notion of trust. And it's been a bit of a theme of our conversation from the beginning. And uh, where is that balance between, you know, sort of trust and self-protection? I think if I'm going to err, I probably want to err on the side of trust. David and Gary's friendship deepened into the two men doing healing work together, appearing at speaking engagements to spread their message of trust, healing, and forgiveness. David and I, have he's been really gracious to invite me to a lot of events um, to speak. But one of the, the things that has always stuck in my head from day one, the very first time we were ever asked to speak, I can still remember my thought process was, If I can just shorten the amount of time that it takes a person to heal, then I'll do this forever. It could be a room of 500, 
But if one person goes away and says, wow, you made me think differently, or I can incorporate some of what you've been through into my own personal space and develop my own path forward, that was pretty much my motivating factor. I feel sometimes I'm just a human experiment on myself. I'm my own guinea pig, but uh, happy to share the results. Gary describes picking up the phone and taking David's call as probably one of the top five decisions he's ever made in his life. Remember when I said earlier that something beautiful would come out of all this violence, pain, and horror? Just think what would have been lost if Gary or David, either one or both of them, had shut down. Had either man allowed himself to be made smaller rather than larger by the circumstances he found himself in, then the ripple effect of the peace and healing each of them, together and separately, has brought into the world would never have happened. You know, we, we live in a culture, maybe in a species that has practiced a lot of violence. And uh, I think, you know, violence looks powerful because you, you can impose on somebody else something that, you know, they can't change and it may be irreversible. Violence has this illusion of power, but um, I think one thing that I feel I've truly learned is that uh, violence is not powerful. It's, it's weak. It, it is only destructive. It only makes the world worse. Love doesn't look so powerful. I mean, it it's, works in more subtle ways. Its results are not immediate often. But I think I've, I've known through my parents, through Linda, through Gary, through others, so many others, that uh, love is by far the more powerful force in this world. And the more we recognize that love is powerful and violence is weak, um, the better chance we'll have to make this world a better place. Many thanks to David Kaczynski and Gary Wright for speaking with me today. David is the author of Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family. And Gary is an activist and speaker. Find out more about the work Gary's doing at gbwright.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. You may have noticed that many of the guests on Family Secrets are writers, those who have given form and voice to their secrets. That's why I'm so thrilled to be sponsored by Audible. Family Secrets listeners can get one audiobook of their choosing including bestsellers and new releases and access to Audible's all-new Plus catalog, 
free with a 30-day trial. Visit audible.com slash Danny or text Danny to 500-500 to get started.